McElroy for the second time as the FedEx Cup champion. What a run, what a week, and what a paycheck. For winning the FedEx Cup last year, Rory McIlroy received $15 million. That, on top of his prize money for the season and an additional $1.5 million for finishing second in the Wyndham Rewards Challenge. In total, Rory made $24,285,286 on the golf course last season. And that doesn't include even one cent of endorsement money. According to Forbes, they're the authority on this sort of thing, McElroy took home a cool $52 million in 2019. All these numbers are silly, really. It's like Monopoly money, but with way more zeros. This week, after the Tour Championship wraps up in Atlanta, the PGA Tour will hand out $75 million in FedEx Cup prize money. Someone will get that $15 million grand prize, and the last place guy will get $400,000. So you could shoot 80 four straight times this week to finish 20 shots behind everyone else and still earn enough money to put your kid through college. Even amidst a global pandemic and the economic fallout from it, the already very rich are getting richer. And that's the reality of today's PGA Tour. During the 2018-19 season, which was a full one, no three-month COVID hiatus, Pat Perez finished 125th in the FedEx Cup standings. In normal years, that's the last guy guaranteed to keep his full status on the PGA Tour. So should you worry about Pat Perez? Well, he made $1.1 million for the year on course. So, no. In total, 54 guys made over $2 million and 27 made over $3 million. Every week is comical. I just can't fathom it. That's Joel Damon, who finished 35th on the regular season money list this year. And Joel's yet to win on the PGA Tour, but you don't have to win on the PGA Tour to make life-changing money. He made an 18-footer for birdie on the 18th hole on Sunday of the PGA Championship to finish in a tie for 10th. He made $252,000 that week. In that final birdie putt on 18, it ended up being worth nearly $60,000, which is more than the average American makes in an entire year. Joel's made over $2 million during this shortened season. So right now, life is good for Joel Damon. Wife and I just bought a second house um, in Scottsdale that we're going to remodel. Um, and, uh, you know, we're going to use our first home for a, for a rental house, you know, to, to, for an investment property. And it was only a couple years ago and we couldn't, you know, we couldn't afford very much. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the money out here is, is comical. Jack Nicholas, who won 18 majors and 73 PGA Tour events, he earned $5.73 million on course during his career. Joel Damon, who has won zero majors and zero PGA Tour events, he's earned $5.79 million on course and counting. Yeah, of course, inflation accounts for some of that difference, but not even close to all of it. So how do we get here? How do we get to this current age of a $75 million FedEx Cup, of guys ranked 125th on the money list, making over a million dollars a year, of guys wearing the logos of six companies on their shirt? What is it about professional golf that gives players a chance to take care of not just their immediate families, but probably the future generations as well? And perhaps most pressing in this time of growing uncertainty, can it continue? I'm Daniel Rappaport, and this is Local Knowledge, the Golf Digest podcast that takes a deep dive into the most compelling stories in golf. 
Today's episode will examine the progression of professional golf from a traveling sideshow to a multi-billion dollar business. We'll start from the beginning. In the first few decades of the 20th century, many of the world's best golfers never turned pro at all. Bobby Jones comes to mind, of course, but there are plenty of other examples of these career amateurs. Pro golf was considered a kind of unglamorous vocation. There was no honor in it, and the money wasn't that good either. But that began to change in the late 1940s, when the two best players in the world at the time, Ben Hogan and Byron Nelson, they were both professionals. But being a pro golfer back then, it didn't mean what it means now. Today, there's a super clear difference between tour pros and club pros. Tour pros play in tournaments for money. Club pros teach and run member guests at their club for money. But back then, there wasn't such an obvious distinction, because there was no PGA Tour yet. There weren't 40-plus tournaments per year to enter. You played as many tournaments as you could afford to travel to, and you supplemented it all by being a club pro. Ben Hogan was the head pro at Hershey Country Club in Pennsylvania, and Byron Nelson was the head pro at Inverness Club in Ohio. Now, some guys, the best of the best, scored some endorsement deals, but they're not the kind you'd see today. Golfers would play exhibition matches and grab a few hundred bucks or maybe endorse a certain brand of cigarettes and get a couple hundred bucks for that and a couple cartons of smokes. That's Golf Digest senior editor Mike Johnson. He technically covers equipment, but covering equipment also means covering the multinational corporations who make that equipment and their relationship with the best players in the world. They were good golfers, but they were bad agents. They were doing these deals on their own. And I think what people don't realize is the idea of sports representation uh, really didn't exist in the 1940s, 1950s. Um, the players were doing it all on their own. That is, until an attorney named Mark McCormick decided that he liked golf better than law. In late 1958, Mark McCormick pitched the idea of a representation to a few golfers. The idea was he'd go out and find them sponsorship deals so that they could focus on their golf. And he signed up a few, but by 1960, there was one star that burned brighter than the rest. There was one guy he wanted desperately, Arnold Palmer. Palmer had yet to get on board, and what actually ended up occurring was Palmer wanted someone to represent him and only him. And so uh, late 1959, early 1960, somewhere in that time frame, they got together and McCormick said, yeah, I'll do that. And Palmer and him had the famous handshake deal. Uh, I mean, it's one of the great stories of sports representation that they didn't have a formal contract. It was on a handshake, man of his word, two men of their word. And uh, from there, things you know got interesting getting around the country in comfort and style for me that has to be a cadillac everywhere i go people ask me arnie is that old tractor you drove in the Pennzoil commercial still running still running we use it here at latrobe every day fortunately i made the putt and now all we have to do is wait and see what happens by 1960, McCormick wanted to take advantage of what he saw as a massive opportunity, the intersection of sports and television, which was just on its way to becoming a fixture in American households. 
McCormick started the International Management Group, which you may know as IMG, in 1960, with a golfer, Arnold Palmer, as his main client. With McCormick and TV's help, Palmer soon became a household name and a fixture in ads for any number of different products. I think he had the one thing that you absolutely have to have as a product endorser. He was relatable. The every man really related to Palmer in a way that they didn't with Nicholas. Nicholas was an amazing golfer, but he wasn't really a warm personality and he almost seemed too perfect. You know, Palmer, everyone kind of knew his story. He was the Pennsylvania kid, grew up, you know, on the tractor at the golf course in Latrobe and hitched his pants up and the go-for-broke style. And there was one other thing that made him particularly effective at his job. He was a good-looking dude. I mean, there was no denying that. He had charisma in spades. He had that perfect combination of masculinity, charisma, plain style uh, that just made him appeal to such a wide swath of people. Uh, He could, you know, sell sand in the desert, as they say. So Palmer laid the foundation for golfers to become rich, like really stinking rich. But something else happened in the late 1960s that forever shifted the landscape of the professional game. So until then, tour pros played under the umbrella of the PGA of America, which is the same entity that oversaw and currently oversees club pros. But in the late 1960s, the tour pros realized they had different interests from the club pros, and they also realized that they had leverage. So they split from the PGA of America and formed the Tournament Players Division, which later became known as the PGA Tour. With their own tour and with a wave of stars to carry the torch from Palmer, guys like Jack Nicklaus, Tom Watson, Gary Player, purses began to grow. The first tournament with a $1 million prize fund was the 1986 Panasonic Las Vegas Invitational. And as purses steadily grew, golfers also began to diversify to continue to seek income from places other than golf tournaments. Example 1A of this was Greg Norman. What Norman did wasn't so much from an endorser standpoint. Uh, His impact was felt as an investor endorser. Uh, So when you see players nowadays trying to get a small piece of a company, uh, Norman was the template for that. And they're all hoping to have the same success. I mean, Greg Norman was number one several times in the late 80s, early and mid 90s. And he bought 12% of Cobra Golf in 1991 and, and became a very effective billboard for the brand at that time. Because of, again, much like Palmer, Norman was a very attractive guy. You know, the great white shark was a very cool moniker. He played in a swashbuckling style of golf, and, and he was dominant. So whatever became of Norman's investment in Cobra? Was it successful? What happened was when Cobra was acquired by a Kushnet in 1997 for $700 million, Norman's $1.8 million investment in Cobra earned him $40 million. Meanwhile, Arnold Palmer kept on cashing checks. Even after his career ended, Palmer continued to be one of the higher-grossing golfers thanks to all of those endorsement deals. And Mr. Palmer was part of another revolutionary idea in the mid-1990s, to start a 24-7 channel that showed golf all day, every day. As far as the name, he kept it simple, the Golf Channel. And it changed the game. 
every golfer should have given Arnold Palmer 25 cents on the dollar, and that may be shortchanging it. Um, his impact on the financial landscape of golf is almost immeasurable. The Tiger effect certainly is, uh, is large in scale and can't be dismissed in any way, but I'm not sure we get to the Tiger effect if we didn't have Arnold Palmer first. Local Knowledge is brought to you by TaylorMade and the TP5 and TP5X golf balls. Now, thousands have already made the switch to the TP5 and the TP5X from TaylorMade. Maybe you know some of them. John Rahm, Rory McIlroy, Dustin Johnson, and Jason Day, just to name a few. If they can win golf tournaments with it, think of what you'll be able to do with the best-performing ball in golf. So go pick up a box of TP5 or TP5X and join the movement today. What are you waiting for? Available at your local retailer or at tailormadegolf.com. Again, your local retailer or tailormadegolf.com. It's been a great run. I wouldn't change a thing. That's Andrew Whitley. And the run he's referring to is his 27 years as an agent for PGA Tour players. He's now the president of sports marketing at GSE Worldwide, whose clients include Bryson DeChambeau, Sergio Garcia, Louis Oosthuizen, Jim Furyk, a bunch of others. It's safe to say the agent game has changed just a bit since he started in 1994, the year before the Golf Channel launched. The uh, the landscape has changed so much just because, I mean, golf back then was, you know, some tournaments were only on, you know, PGA Tour events were only on four to six on Saturday and Sunday, no early round coverage. Um, no shot link, um, no featured groups, all the things. I mean, no golf channel. There was no golf channel back then and no internet. So I couldn't, like, I remember calling up the press room for scores to uh, to see how my players were doing and stuff. <laughs> it's changed. Yeah, it's changed just a little bit. Now we're all glued to the app. I asked Whitlieb why golfers are such effective billboards, particularly for companies like Goldman Sachs, which just signed Patrick Cantlay to a big deal. And Cantlay, as we all know, he's not a huge personality. I mean, the only way to reach affluent people generally on the weekend is through golf um, because, you know, they, they watch CNBC during the week. And, and then on the weekends, a lot of times what they're doing is they're playing golf at their clubs and then they go home and watch the PGA Tour from three to six on Saturday and Sunday. So if you want to reach your consumer on the weekend, that affluent consumer market, the Wall Street guy, et cetera, you know, golf is the best place to do it. And you know you can do it every single weekend because it's on TV every single weekend. Golf Channel, of course, is a huge reason why there is golf on TV every single weekend. But just because it's on, that doesn't mean people will watch it. And that was kind of a problem in the mid-90s. Yeah, there were great players like Norman and Nick Faldo and Nick Price, but a true superstar, a guy that carried the torch from Palmer and Nicholas, that wasn't there until this guy showed up. I guess, hello world, huh? <laughs> That's Tiger Woods speaking on the eve of the 1996 Greater Milwaukee Open. Thank you for um, being here today. Um, yesterday, I confirmed that I had decided to become a professional golfer. Having won six straight USGA titles, he won three straight US juniors and then three straight US amateurs, there was obviously a bidding war for Tiger's signature. And during that announcement, Woods made it clear who had won that bidding war. He was wearing a black and green striped polo with the Nike swoosh adorned on his left breast. 
It was the first day of what was then the most lucrative endorsement deal in golf history and a truly iconic player-brand relationship. Back to our Mike Johnson. He ushered in the era of the mega deal. His original five-year contract with Nike was for five years, $40 million. Then he re-upped for another five years at $100 million. That was followed by an eight-year deal estimated north of $200 million. So he really opened the door for guys, you know, the Mickelsons of the world, the McElroys of the world, to sign these very lengthy, very lucrative deals. Woods won his first major at the Masters in April 1997. And immediately he became the biggest star in the sport and one of the biggest stars in sports, period. Tiger was a young, good-looking, multiracial kid with a glowing smile and he hit the ball further than anyone else. So he appealed to a whole demographic of people that probably never cared about golf before that. It wasn't just white men anymore. There were more eyes and younger eyes on golf. So the PGA Tour could charge TV networks more money for the rights to broadcast their product. One month after Tiger's win at the Masters, the tour announced a four-year, $400 million TV deal that was more than double the previous TV deal. That had an immediate impact on purses, because TV money tends to account for roughly 60% of the prize money for any given tournament. The rest is put up by the tournament sponsors, so not just the title sponsor, but the presented by sponsors. It's basically any company that has a presence at the tournament. And because of Tiger, more of these companies wanted to be associated with golf, so they'd offer up more money to sponsor the tournaments. Now, more TV money and more sponsorship money, that means more money for the players. The purses began to explode. Quickly. In 1995, the year before Woods turned pro, Greg Norman led the money list at $1.65 million. In 1997, Woods' first full year as a professional golfer, he led the money list at $2.06 million. Three years later, in 2000, Woods won nine times and made $9.18 million. And the 23rd place finisher on the money list that year, Mark Kalkovecchia, made more money than Greg Norman did in 1995. So the 23rd best golfer in 2000 was making more money than the best golfer in 1995. That's the difference Tiger made in just five years. So if golfers owe 25 cents of every dollar to Palmer, like Mike suggested, well, some of that dollar should probably also go to one Tiger Woods. By the mid-2000s, Woods was making roughly $80 million per year. By about 2008, it was north of $100 million. Now, he was winning tournaments at an unprecedented rate, but most of that money was coming from endorsements. Now, no one in golf was anywhere close to as marketable as Tiger, but even for the other guys, the endorsement landscape was particularly fruitful around that time, especially with the golf equipment companies. Back to our resident expert, Mike Johnson. The guy who was 100th on the money list 10 years ago, man, he was living large. I mean, they, they could get $500,000 deals and it would be easy for them. And that's $500,000 per year for a guy that the vast majority of sports fans and probably a bunch of golf fans would probably have never heard of. So 10 years ago, that was probably the peak of endorsement deals. The money was flowing. Around that time, TaylorMade would pay guys weekly sums, sometimes up to $10,000 per week, just to put their driver in play so that TaylorMade could win the driver count and call themselves the number one driver on tour. What's interesting, though, is that while purses have continued to rise, 
endorsement money hasn't. The days of the almost indiscriminate deals are gone. They're long gone. Yeah, there are still plenty of mega deals for certain players. Tiger, Phil, Rory, Bryson, those guys will all be getting north of $5 million per year from their manufacturers. But there is, without question, less money being handed out to guys in that next tier. It's why there are so many players who go the equipment-free agent route, where they choose not to sign an endorsement deal with a manufacturer so they can play whatever 14 clubs they please. Their thought process here is that whatever money they're leaving on the table by not signing with a manufacturer, they're going to make that up and more in prize money, which, unlike endorsement money, has continued to rise. So say you're offered 400 grand a year to play Brand X, but you don't really want to do that because since you were a kid, you've played Brand Y drivers and Brand Z wedges and Brand Q balls. So you turn down that offer, but then you finish in the top 10 twice and you make all that money back. Current top-level pros without an equipment deal include Brooks Kepka, Patrick Reed, Tommy Fleetwood, Matthew Fitzpatrick, Paul Casey, Justin Rose, there are plenty of others. But why? Why aren't these players getting offered the same money from the manufacturers that they would in, say, 2009? The main reason is companies have realized the return on investment just isn't there. You know, there's kind of an old saw of Jack Nicklaus and Arnold Palmer were two of the biggest names in golf, and the equipment companies that their name was on were both failures. It's a true story. Both Palmer and Nicholas started golf equipment companies, and both were not a success. And if Arnold and Jack can't sell equipment, who can? I mean, Tiger Woods played Nike golf clubs, and we know what happened to Nike golf clubs. Exactly right. So, so this idea that individuals sell clubs really doesn't hold true. Maybe individuals don't sell clubs, but TaylorMade is banking that having a bunch of the biggest names in the sport will sell clubs. They've decided to become super top-heavy with their endorsement dollars. They want the superstars. Now, a ton of guys play TaylorMade drivers on their own volition. But if you go on TaylorMade's website and you click Tour Players, the only men listed? Tiger Woods, Rory McIlroy, John Rahm, Dustin Johnson, Jason Day, Colin Morikawa, Matt Wolf, and Ricky Fowler. That's it. That's their branding strategy. The big stars. Think of TaylorMade's endorsement dollars as a pie chart. Back in the mid-2000s, small pieces of the pie went to a bunch of players. Today, it's huge pieces of the pie going to just a few players. So these days, less endorsement money is going to the tour's rank and file, which means for agents who typically don't get paid a percentage of prize money but do get a percentage of the endorsement deals they bring in, there's even more incentive to find the next megastar. And they're starting that search really, really young. We represent Bryson DeChambeau. We reached out to Bryson when he was a freshman in college. That's our agent friend again, Andrew Whitlieb. Uh, a player that we didn't get, we reached out to when he was a for Colin Morikawa. We started recruiting him when he was a freshman in college. But, I mean, you need to start really young. Now it's starting even younger. So we're starting to recruit guys, you know, when they're seniors in high school, if we know they're going to be good. And did that used to be the case, you know, when it was... No, I, I recruited Jim Furyk when he was already on the PGA Tour. That trend, the race to sign really young players, I mean, kids, really, it rubs some in the industry the wrong way. Here's Drew Carr, another longtime established golf agent. There are some agencies out there that um, will, in my opinion, say whatever they need to say to sign someone, and they will deal with the ramifications later. So promising sponsors exemptions, um, 
guaranteeing sponsorship dollars. Um, it all sounds great to, you know, a naive 22 year old and, and their parents who are convinced that they have, um, you know, the next Colin Morikawa. What you are seeing is that um, they'll sell the farm to get the rep agreement signed and then they don't deliver on the promise and there's no real ramification. If you're going to gamble on golf, you may as well do it right. And for any golf fan who's curious about betting on golf but hasn't gotten serious about it, we have the podcast for you. Be Right is Golf Digest's weekly gambling podcast featuring the latest PGA Tour intel and picks from an expert panel that is up nearly 300 units this season. That's a gambling term, by the way. With thoughts from some of fantasy sports' brightest minds and even an anonymous tour caddy at our side, we've done our best to turn betting on golf into a science to help you make money off golf. While we can't promise that you'll come out ahead every week, we can guarantee you'll be well-informed and entertained along the way. So stop doing golf wagers wrong and join us on Be Right. You know, coming from a, a blue-collar, middle-class family, like, my parents just went to work to provide for their family, and um, this is just another means of doing that. Is it a better mean? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my dad worked at a pulp and paper mill. My mom was a school teacher. Their son, Joel Damon, he became a professional golfer. But Joel didn't take the gilded path to the PGA Tour that the phenoms like Jordan Spieth or Matt Wolf did. He grinded on the Canadian Tour, the Latino America Tour, the Gateway Tour, and the state open circuit for five years before finally getting to the web.com tour. And then, eventually, at the age of 29, six years after he turned pro, Joel got his PGA Tour card for the 2016-17 season. I get to play golf for a living. Super lucky, super fortunate, but at the same time, it's still work. I'm treating it like work. You know, we're on the road 25, 30 weeks out of the year. People don't realize how taxing that is. You know, catching flights and hotels or rental houses and just different things every week. And um, people just don't realize how, I mean, how much goes into, like, by the time we tee it up, they see Thursday through Sunday and they see a big check on Sunday. But it's been a lot of blood, sweat, and tears to get there. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I'm super thankful and super fortunate. And I hope, um, you know, I can keep going for a long time. Damon's a top 70 player in the world rankings, and he has back-to-back seasons of $2 million in earnings on the PGA Tour. A quick side note. I was super curious about how players actually get the money. Like, say you make two hundred grand on a Sunday afternoon. How and when do you actually get the cash? I think people don't know when you make the money. Does the does the money just show up in like a direct deposit, like everybody else? Yeah, yeah um, it's Wednesday mornings on tour, and so it's like a really fun morning to wake it's up. A really sick into your account. Yeah. <laughs> in addition to receiving huge direct deposits on Wednesday mornings. Joel also has plenty of sponsors. You're sponsored by Bartosol, MGM Result, Resorts, Tradition Energy, PXG, and Clear Voice. Am I missing any? Link Soul is my clothing company. I don't know if you said that. Now, some of those deals were negotiated by his agent, but some were actually the result of Damon just networking. His goal? Try to get away with the friendship thing, and you try to, at that point, just make as much money as you can without hitting a golf shot. There is, however, a quid pro quo of sorts, and it goes beyond just the company giving you money and you having their logo on your sleeve. Players are expected to make multiple in-person appearances on behalf of their sponsors every year. This is industry standard. You know, they range from one to five corporate days a year. Um, and that's, you know, so whether it could be pro-am, it could be like a pro-am and dinner type thing. Um, it could be just going to 
maybe having, you know, setting up like on the practice team, doing like a two or three hour seminar for, for people. Sometimes it's online, just chatting, whatever it could be, that it's kind of up to them. It could be a photo shoot for a day. It's kind of whatever um, they decide, but uh, they, and they most of the time do a great job working around your schedule and, you know, make it like a Monday of event when you're in town for their headquarters or whatever. So you can do stuff like that for them. But um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's obviously trade-offs that you give back, but most of the time they're pretty fun actually. And especially when you get to start knowing people with the company and, and being friends with them. So up until now, this podcast has been all positive, multi-million dollar purses and sponsorship money and fun outings with cool people. Now is the part where we have to talk about the not so fun stuff, expenses. PGA Tour players have tons of them. So say Joel makes $100,000 at a tournament. Here's how that money gets spliced up. $100,000 paycheck, 40 grand's going to taxes. Um, that's pretty typical, you know, especially when you're in you know, fed, federal tax, I think it's 37 and a half, and then you gotta pay your state, state income tax, the state you made it in. Um, then your caddy's getting a salary for the week and eight or 10% for the make cuts. So we just say about 10% of that money goes there. And then you have your airfare. Well, people have coaches now. So um, some people pay their coach anywhere from one to 5%. I'm not, can't really talk for a lot of those bigger guys, but somewhere in there, the coach gets some, uh, some people have a PT out on the road. Now they're going to be getting a quarterly check. Some people do percentage with them. So maybe a couple percent's gone there. And then, you know, if you're traveling with your wife, um, it's two plane tickets. Um, hotels range from 1,000 to 2,000. Sometimes just a Marriott for, you know, 150 a night. Sometimes you can get a nicer Airbnb for a couple thousand a night. Uh, the better you play, the better you stay. Yeah. And then you have food. So, uh, you know, and the better you play, the better you eat. So, um, I mean, that all chalks up to, you know, if you have, you're, you're looking at maybe take, you take home them about 40% of what you make 50% if you handle anything really well, you're saving 10% of it. And then your, you know, retirement, some of it. And by the time it's all said and done, I mean, if you handle your money correctly, you have about 20% actually goes into like a cash fund that you're playing with. So, which is great, but it's also just not as much money as people think it is. We also have to talk about another not so fun thing, the global pandemic. It's affected virtually every business in America, and professional golf is no different. Yeah, golf was really the first major sport to return, but with no fans since the restart in June and no fans likely for the rest of the year, the PGA Tour itself will almost certainly take a big loss for the year 2020. As a sign of this, a few weeks ago, the tour announced cost-cutting measures that included layoffs. And the tour also canceled the seasons of the PGA Tour Latino America, the PGA Tour Canada, and the PGA Tour China, which made the already really brutal life of a mini-tour player even tougher. But PGA Tour players, however, they've been mostly insulated from all that, at least for now. COVID has made a number of key revenue drivers impossible, like pro-ams, which are huge for both the tournament sponsor and the primary source of funds for charity. And it's also impossible to have gate sales because there's no fan tickets and there's no concessions. But purses, they haven't dropped. That's because the TV money is still there and the tournament sponsors are still there. So winning a tournament in front of nobody gets you the same winner's check as winning it in front of 40,000 screaming knuckleheads. Where the PGA Tour players might become affected eventually is in sponsorship money. Here's Drew Carr once again. We still have yet to see the, the total impact on budgets um, 
there's already some happenings and rumblings going on um, of significant reductions in especially equipment uh, company budgets. I think you have some some legitimate cuts going on, and we have uh, we've seen personally um, a leveraging of the environment to either cut costs or claim that they have less than they do <laughs> uh, to try to leverage the athletes. So yeah, sponsorship money could continue to dwindle. But as we've talked about, that's kind of been happening for a while. The tour will be fine. Even if 2021 is as fiscally brutal as 2020, and it may well be, a new $680 million TV deal goes into effect in 2022. That's plenty of money for purses. And that deal, by the way, it was announced on the Monday of the Players' Championship. You know, the one that was canceled after Thursday due to coronavirus. Talk about unreal timing. So as long as the tour can continue to find sponsors for tournaments, purses won't drop. They'll probably rise. And they should be able to do that. In the age of Netflix, live sports still hold tremendous value to advertisers. Yeah, traditional commercials may eventually go out of style, but PGA Tour players act as living commercials and they're during the action. So that will never change. And the tour's open arms embrace of gambling, plus the fact that it was the only sport people were able to gamble on for about two months, that should bring plenty of new eyeballs to broadcasts. All this to say, don't start a GoFundMe for your favorite PGA Tour player just yet. And remember, FedEx is locked into providing the cash for the FedEx Cup through 2027. So whoever makes $15 million this Sunday, almost three times what Jack Nicklaus made for his entire career, he won't be the last. Uh, you know, we're the best, whatever, 200 players in the world at what we do. So I don't know if anybody deserves this much money, but, you know, um, I'm certainly not going to complain about it. Local Knowledge is produced by Greg Gottfried with editorial guidance from Sam Weinman. The music for this episode is called Jimmy Vibe by Admiral Bob, and we got it from CC Mixter. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts, and we'd also greatly appreciate a review.